This is episode 36 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and on today's episode, we have Matt Ward. He is, we call him a repeat offender. He actually was on episode five with us. Uh, We talked about the Yale Swallow Protocol and how to make your clinical swallow exams a little more reliable, and we also talked about the Maggie Lee Huckabee paper of rethinking rehab. So go back and check out episode five if you want to hear more of Matt, but uh, Matt is, he currently does mobile fees for SA Swallowing Services in Nashville, Tennessee, and he also works PRN at a hospital where he does MBSs, so very instrumental heavy, our friend Matt is. <laughs> so this episode actually was supposed to be all about report writing, and after, when I went back and listened to the entire episode, we really didn't get into report writing until the very end of it. So I actually, I'm going to split this interview into three parts because Matt just did an excellent job of presenting the research of really what you should know as far as anatomy, physiology, neurology, a lot of the basic core contents that you should know about before you even start doing instrumentals. So I think this is going to be a great episode. I get a lot of emails all the time for people saying, you know, they're even grad students, like I want to jump in and do instrumentals right away. And there's just so much foundational knowledge that people need to have before they do them. Even SLPs that have been doing them for 20 years, I think there's a lot we've been missing out on. So like I said, I broke this episode up into three parts, so you'll be hearing three parts of this. And as always, Matt put together super thorough notes. Uh, it was actually a PowerPoint presentation that um, that we broke down into, into notes. So you can download those at bit.ly bit.ly forward slash SYP podcast 036. And lots of references. This is going to be a great episode, and I really hope that you guys enjoy this. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. This week's episode is brought to you by the Medical SLP Solution Monthly Membership. What would it feel like if every week delivered right to you were resources that included videos and handouts about topics that affect the way we treat our patients every day? Well, that is exactly what the Medical SLP Solution Membership is. Every week, we send you a two to three page handout, including an intro, why, how, and instructions about topics chosen by the members including dysphagia, aphasia, dysarthria, pediatric swallowing, voice, just to name a few. They are all reviewed by university professors to ensure APA format of the references. And the professors also usually add in some recommended readings if you want to dive further into that topic. I also record about a 10-minute video of that topic, so if you don't want to waste trees or if you don't have time to read, just get your weekly 10-minute topic in on the way to work. Some of the topics that we've covered include how to do a cranial nerve assessment, lab values that the medical SLP should be aware of, how drugs can affect dysphagia, how to complete oral care, the neural control of swallowing, infant-driven feeding. So lots of great topics that we've already covered. And our members also have access to an exclusive private Facebook group or private forum where you can post anonymously if you would like, which is run by experts in various areas of the field ready to answer your difficult patient questions. And if you don't have time to check social media or check the forum, no sweat. 
Every Friday, I email a weekly roundup of the resources for the week, as well as links to all of the excellent questions and incredible responses by our moderators. So if you missed a really great discussion, you can click right to it. No more FOMO. That's fear of missing out. So I provide all that to you every Friday. And this is all topped off with an exclusive monthly webinar for our community members. It also includes a Q&A session, and that will be accredited for ASHA CEU starting in May. So if this sounds like something you're absolutely interested in, whether you're a complete newbie to the field, you're a CF on Dysphagia Island desperate for support, you're a mom of five kids with 20 years experience and no clue if you've kept up with the latest research, then head over to medslpsolution.com to join anytime. You get access to all of this for just $25 a month, but you may want to jump in soon because we are going to close down registration sometime in May to get ready for those upcoming CEU webinars. So don't delay, join the community now, and feel free to ask away. Hello, Matt. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for being a repeat offender on the show. I'm happy to be a repeat offender. Uh, apparently, I have lots to say. <laughs> good, good, good. I love having people on here that have lots to say because sometimes I run out of ideas. So I love when you guys are like, let's talk about this. So, yes. All right. Well, today's discussion is going to be a, a fun one. And as Matt puts it, a frank one. Um, <laughs> but we're going to talk a little bit about writing good reports, writing good MBS reports, writing good fees reports, but we're going to kind of dig into a lot more behind that too and why you really need to know your anatomy and physiology and neurology and it's not just learning how to write from a gold bank. So is that a good summary, Matt? That's an excellent summary. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, right. I started out to write this or to do this presentation. I thought I just want to, I don't know, help people write better reports. And then I realized very little of it's about writing and it's much more about how you think about things um, and how you structure the test overall and your background knowledge of anatomy and physiology. And before I knew it, this PowerPoint that I'd put together was <laughs> heavy, heavy, heavy on just about everything except actually writing. That's okay. <laughs> but but I think it's so important though, because I think you can, you can teach anybody to write a report just by clicking drop-down boxes. Yeah. Right. Like that, yeah. that doesn't take a rocket scientist, but to actually know what you're looking at and to be able to think critically about, you know, like, like I know you're stressing this about the neurology behind things. That's, that's taking things a whole step further. So I think we're trying to just get beyond the drop box, you know, the drop down box here and actually put your brain cells into it. Well, yeah. And it turns out, you know, very few, very few programs at the master's level have, um, access or ready access to fees and modifieds. So how do you learn? You kind of learn on the job. So our training isn't always the best. Some of us have excellent training. Um, but even then, you know, it. you've been practicing long enough. Uh, it takes a long time to master this. And what mastery really means with instrumentals, I think, is uh, really understanding all of the things you don't know. Yes, yes. Um, and 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 be not being afraid to recognize that you don't know it and seek further training for it. Absolutely. I think that's where we're so I I despise hearing, oh, I've been doing it this way for 20 years. I just, you know, I spoke with a woman I think I talked about a few episodes ago, and she is resistant to trying the MBS IMP because she's been doing MBSs this way for 20 years. You know, yeah. so it's it's like, oh, my, you know, we just know so much more now. So you just you have to be open to knowing what you don't know. Absolutely. And that's just kind of a I don't know, 
for me, it doesn't matter how long I've been practicing. If I'm not able to be wrong, then I'm, it's time to get out. It is. All right. So let's get started here. Let's be honest, Matt. Let's be honest. The title (laughs) of my first slide. Um, One of the things that really got me going about this topic is I have seen some posts on maybe some Facebook pages. I've also just bumped into some clinicians here and there doing different things, modifieds and fees. Um, And you have a lot of clinicians who don't know the basic um, anatomy. Um, And so I'm going to get into that in a second, but I I just want to take a a page out of uh, an article I read from Joe Murray. Honest self-criticism and continuous improvement are vital to reducing errors when performing instrumental swallowing assessments. Um, I'm kind of going to, I'm going to kind of end with uh, a quote from Joe Murray or begin with one and end with one. Um, uh, apparently I can't say it any better than, than he did. Um, but before we really get into it, and I think we talked about this just a second ago, before we really get into how to write a good report, we're going to have to talk about some basics. Well, but I love that it's not just you talking fluff here, Matt. It's actually, you know, you referenced a guy from a textbook, right? So there's some weight behind this, not just you flapping your gums here. Right, right. I mean, our opinions are all valuable to the extent that they help our patients. And, and some of our friends who have been published, uh, at least in peer-reviewed journals, uh, it looks like they're, uh, at least some other people also thought, uh, this might be worth saying to some, some more people. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, it, it's definitely uh, more than just more than just one person's opinion. Um, so if you're going to do modifieds, and and you and I have talked about this um, in private, and I've heard you talk about it on the podcast, and I think I mentioned it on my first podcast, is how important it is to visualize uh, pharyngeal anatomy and physiology, um, what a game changer that can be for our patients, um, and, and how it's really rough to to not have access to that. Uh, and then I kind of felt like, you know what, uh, all day, every day I read reports. So, uh, for those who don't remember, I, I do mobile fees. Um, and so most of the time we're going into rehab hospitals, um, and skilled nursing facilities, uh, to do an assessment on a patient who may or may not have dysphagia. And so I'm reading a lot of reports from acute care. Um, that's all I do, um, is, is read reports from acute care. And it just kind of hit me. Uh, uh, maybe the training hasn't been great. Um, maybe there's productivity demands. Maybe there's, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of good reasons that our reports aren't great. Um, but we don't have a lot of great reports. Um, the clinicians uh, that I'm running into don't have, a, a lot of the times don't have the information they need to treat their patient on the other end. And we think, I think a lot of times we believe as clinicians that, you know, paperwork is this just kind of uh, drudgery that's this horrible thing that we have to do that gets in the way of treating patients. Uh, but realistically, the documents that we create for our patients follow them. And it's the only way we have to continue to advocate for them after they leave us. Um, so it actually is the most important thing you can do is write a good report. Um, and one of the most detrimental things you can do is, is write a bad report. Um, so saying, having said all that, um, I really thought, well, we haven't had an episode where we really talked about kind of what you need to do to do good modifieds and to do good fees. Um, so uh, for me, it starts with anatomy and physiology. The first question I would ask you if you're doing uh, modifieds and fees is, you know, the anatomy and physiology of the normal and abnormal swallowing. 
So most of us had who had a class uh, in graduate school on dysphagia. Some of us didn't, um, but uh, most of us had a class. It was called dysphagia. Uh, we get to learn how to find everything wrong with someone's swallow. Uh, we don't. We didn't talk a whole lot about what normal physiology is, um, and that's even in the good classes. There's some work, good work coming out now about what a normal swallow is and what happens when the when swallow as we age. Um, but there, quite frankly, just wasn't a lot of information, even for those of us who had really good uh, dysphagia education. Um, so the first question is, do you know the anatomy and physiology of normal and abnormal swallowing? Um, and I'm talking, do you really know it? Like not a working understanding of it, like the basics, but... If you intend to do quality assessments, you've got to intricately know this stuff. And so, uh, you know, I've seen a couple of times people don't know landmarks on fees and on modifieds. Like I've seen the epiglottis confused with the uvula. That's pretty basic. Um, and maybe it's time to seek some mentorship before we continue to do uh, fees on our own. Um, and, and the simple fact of the matter is, if you don't know the anatomy, you shouldn't be making decisions that impact people. Like for me, if I go in to have my appendix removed and the doctor took out my kidney, <laughs> I wouldn't get real, you know, I wouldn't be worried about that doctor's uh, feelings when I went yeah. after them about this. Like, oh, well, I wasn't trained very well in this surgery, Matt. And, you know, really, I, it's hard to tell the appendix from this, from the kidney. And, Let's, you know, just be nice. Don't, don't hurt my feelings. Um, no, if you, <laughs> if you don't know the difference between an appendix and a kidney, you shouldn't be doing the procedure. And for us, it's not surgery. And we're certainly not doing uh, what surgeons are doing. I don't mean to equate the two, but it's absolutely every bit as serious. Uh, if we can't identify the anatomy, then we don't need to be doing these studies quite yet. I mean, you can do them. Just take some study. We don't need to be doing them, and we certainly don't need to be defensive about it. But I think that's going to send me off on another tangent, another <laughs> rant here. <laughs> I told you but, we would you know, be talking for a while. I, I know, I know. But I I think it was like a couple months ago that I think that did happen. Was it some, somebody mistaked the epiglottis for the yes. uvula and people were just like, okay, well, where is your mentor? Right. And it was like, well, my mentor just finished her 25 passes, you know, like just finished her 25 supervised passes or whatever. And now she's teaching me. So it's almost like we have the blind leading the blind here. So I think we almost have to, okay, so you understand that you're new and you're asking questions. That's great. But do you really think the mentor you should be learning from is someone that has just learned themselves to? So right. I just and that thought speaks, that was quite that an irresponsible to, thing to do. That speaks to a whole lot of, uh, you know, I think a lot of times people in these situations feel like uh, that all of the comments are coming straight down on their heads uh, and, and they bear the brunt of the all of the blame. But for me, I mean, we have let ourselves down as a profession. We don't do a great job teaching instrumentals um, at the academic level, at the master's level, um, or really, I mean, at the PhD level. Either. We, we don't do a great job of teaching fees or modifieds. And so the only place you can learn is on the job where then you have lots of productivity requirements that make it hard. And then maybe you do have someone who's a good mentor for you, but maybe they take another job. Maybe they retire. Um, 
So it, it is difficult. There's a, there's a lot of reasons why it's not happening, but the simple fact of the matter is we're, we know more than we used to um, about swallowing um, and swallowing disorders. And we know enough uh, that just because we're allowed to do them and we're allowed to bill for these procedures, it doesn't mean we're ready to yet. So anyway, that's my two cents about that one. So you got to know yeah, your anatomy no, and physiology. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that I wrote that whole blog post about that, you know, don't hire Nancy, no nothing is your, you know, fees trainer, but I, totally completely mean it. You know, I, I'm glad that these people are incentivized and wanting to start these programs and wanting to get fees going or wanting to get, you know, an MBS program going in their facility. But then it's almost like they don't factor in the cost of a good mentor, you know, and that should be, I think, first and foremost, you know, they spend all this, you know, capital money getting the equipment, going to a course, but then nobody even thinks about the passes afterwards. It's like, well, I'll just use the ENT next door or, you know, and right. that's not doing anybody any good. So, well, and, and you end up like if, if you've been in this uh, business of treating p- patients with dysphagia long enough, you realize a good mentor is somebody that you're going to ask questions to for life. It's not just somebody who works with you. There's lots of people I could email, text, call um, on a daily basis when something just stumps me. And, you know, the person who trained me may not be the one who can answer that question. But usually, you know, if if I'm not just dragged down and exhausted uh, from that day, I, I realize it's my job to figure out and find out somebody who doesn't. Um, and so it's on us to say, yeah, we don't have enough training to do these yet. All right. So that's our anatomy and physiology. So next Neurology. If you're going to know, if you're going to do this stuff, you got to go neurology uh, or you got to know neurology. Um, you've got to know it just as well as you do the anatomy and physiology. Um, so you and I are going to play a little game now. And I know you know this information. So uh, this will be fun. Uh, so there's, I read reports every day. Remember that. This is, this is where this stuff comes from. Um, I read the the two words, silent penetration a lot. Do you read that a lot? I do. Okay. so And people are making diet changes from it. Correct. So, yeah, uh, silent penetration. Let, let's just talk a little bit about the vagus nerve. Uh, can, we, can we do that for a second? We can. All right. So what branch of the vagus nerve is involved in sensation above the vocal folds? That would be the internal branch of yep. the superior laryngeal nerve. All right, so what branch of the vagus nerve is involved in sensation below the vocal folds? Below is the recurrent laryngeal nerve. All right, so I'm going to ask you another question. Uh, is there a difference in the reflexive response triggered by the, the, by the two? Yes. Yeah. But do you know what the, uh, the, the ISLN triggers? So above, it triggers a reflexive swallow, not yep. a cough. Yep. And below, and, we should be coughing. All right. So with laryngeal penetration, the normal reflexive response is a swallow, not a cough. Now, some of our patients do cough, and we've been talking to everybody who went to DRS. I wasn't there, but uh, apparently there were some papers and some posters on it, and we still don't know why some of our patients cough when there is laryngeal penetration, um, because some of them do. But quite frankly, if we're looking at knowing the neurology really well, um, silent penetration in that laryngeal penetration without a cough isn't really a thing. At least it's not a sign of a disorder. Normal reflex is a swallow. Um, so maybe this will, information will trickle down a little bit. Silent penetration. If you're talking about penetration without a cough, 
it's just really a misunderstanding of normal neurological function. So that's just one example of how we have to really, really, really know this stuff. Just like I love it. anatomy and physiology, got to know the neurology. I love it. Thank you for, and, and where did all this come from, Matt? All so of that all came it. from uh, Steele and Miller. Katrina Steele was the first author on that, uh, yes. on that paper. 2010. Yes, I'll definitely post this in the show notes, but really critical information for everybody to know. Yes. Yeah. Because especially, you know, we've got a lot of, like I said before, we, we typically took classes on dysphagia. So we're looking for things to be wrong. We're going, ha that patient didn't cough. Well, haha, sometimes they're not supposed to, um, you know, it's, it's just, Oh, so they didn't cough. So they must not have good sensation. So we must then thicken their liquids. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Let's just pump the brakes on that a little bit. Um, all right. So we talked about anatomy, physiology, neurology, onto basic medical knowledge. So this is kind of the third leg of the tripod that you have to know if you're going to do um, instrumentals. Uh, you got to know how basic systems work, like how the immune system works, how the cardiopulmonary system works, how the gastrointestinal system works, which, by the way, I loved the, the, the last podcast I listened to on esophageal dysphagia. Oh, my God. Loved With it. Julie, I know. Okay. And that ju- wasn't that just mind-blowing stuff? Like- Reconceptualized how I think of things. And, yeah. and it, intuitively, you know, it's it's – the body is not carved up into discrete systems and discrete places that aren't attached. But, you know, we kind of start, we get used to looking at the same spot and going, all right, well, we can see that. And we know that when there are a lot of other things in play. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I feel like with you, I'm having more of a conversation with Julie. I was just like, (laughs) I just sat like staring at her. I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Yes. Like, (laughs) yeah, that's how I felt listening to that episode. Um, you gotta know how all this stuff works. Um, you got to know how varying disease processes work, um, how they affect the swallowing, how they affect the immune system. Um, and there is a really complex relationship between aspiration and pneumonia. And we really, as a field, it, I know we have a, a good understanding about it because some of the articles I'm going to talk about later have been around for 20 or 30 years. Um, but when I'm talking to other speech therapists on a daily basis, I don't know that that we as a field really have grasped this knowledge and then sort of taken the next steps, What, we, how that needs to affect what we're recommending for our patients. Well, and I love that we're going to talk about this because I actually, um, one of the groups that I do fees for here asked me to do a presentation for all their therapy team, so PT, OT, and speech. So I talked to all of them kind of about this, and it's because I feel like sometimes we get caught up in the whole interdisciplinary care and even like a PT or an OT may say, Oh, they're coughing, you know, and tell the nurse, we got to put them on thick and liquids, you <laughs> yes. know? So I, and, and it's cause we've taught people so well in the past, you know? So I was, I was glad I had this opportunity to kind of bring all these things to light. And, you know, the one, one PT or she was a rehab manager at the one building was like, this stuff's been around for 20 years. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, it has, you know, but for some reason it got buried or we did a good job of, I don't know. <laughs> well, it seems like we got people to listen to some of the things that are easy. Some of the things that we thought were quick fixes for a lot of things like chin tuck. Yeah. You can just yeah. tell every patient to chin tuck. Okay. Awesome. Right. I'm right. going to tell all of our nurses and we're going to put it in our textbooks. Okay. Um, every cough means they're aspirating. Okay. So it, it tends to be those things that, that 
you know, seem to be, you know, one size fits all really easy way to determine something. Those are the things that we got people to listen to. And those are the things that end up uh, coming around to bite us in the end because everything is not that easy. It's very complex. So um, if you've checked sort of the first three boxes, you know, your anatomy, you know, your neurology, you know how the basic systems work. Then it's time to start diving into the instrumental assessments. If not, it doesn't mean you need to stop doing them. It doesn't mean we're shaming people. We're not trying to get people to stop doing this. This is something that you have heard on this podcast multiple times that you need instrumentals and you need good people doing them. We just need to be ready to learn. Well, and I, and I want to chime in here because I, I get so many emails from like grad students or, you know, CFs or new grads. I want to, I want to do my CF doing instrumentals, you know, and I know that like nobody ever likes my response to that, but I always just tell them like, you really should work for a few years yeah. and really master this basic knowledge. I don't, I don't know if you disagree. I know some people do disagree with me and that's totally fine, but I really, really, I, we just get such, if you even do get a dysphagia course in grad school, but it, it's just such minimal knowledge. And I think you really need to work and really need to build up your skill set before diving into doing instrumental assessments, but that's my soapbox. So. Well, I'm not, I'm not in the, I'm not averse to that. Certainly. I think when you look at now, you're going to get me started on something. When you look at <laughs> Asha saying, uh, or at least uh, Asha doesn't say things, we're Asha. But if you look at the stance where we have to know everything, we have to be generalists. Um, I think that makes it hard for us to have the type of medical training that we need to treat dysphagia. Dysphagia, treating that is like not like treating anything else. Um, and so, yeah, I think I'd agree with you in that we don't tend to come out of grad school with a just great wealth of medical knowledge. And you have to kind of learn that on the job. Um, you know, you're, our doctors come out, uh, they're coming out of pre-med, they're taking chemistry and physics um, and biology and all of these things. And, you know, we end up using all of those things, but our grad school, not necessarily uh, training is, is not necessarily filled with all of that. Um, there are physics that are, you can apply to the swallowing areas of low pressure and high pressure. Um, you have to absolutely know epidemiology. Did you get a course in that in grad school? No, sir. Yeah, me either. <laughs> I didn't even know what that was till <laughs> maybe five years out. Yeah. Right. Right. And like, yeah. that's a, so yeah, I, I would agree with you in that sense that we're not, we do not tend to be even preparing the best of us um, uh, for all of the wealth of medical knowledge that you need to, to treat this phagia. Um, so I think it's probably not bad advice to kind of get your uh, medical C's under your belt for a little while before you really shift gears and start doing modifieds and fees full time without a mentor. Um, certainly it's great to spend some time doing training with all of that when you're doing your CF and, and it's good to develop those skills. But I think you're right. It, it is hard to get all of that medical knowledge while applying it. Um, to instrumental assessments and then making good recommendations. That's the hardest thing. Um, I sat with a, a student the other day, a grad student, and I was writing a report with her. Um, she was there in her clinical placement. Uh, and we wrote two sentences on, on one of the trials. Uh, and, and I kind of was talking out loud with her about why I wrote what I wrote. And she said, that's really succinct. And that's a really good way to put that. And I said, that took seven years of experience and all of my grad school and every bit of my mind to be able to determine what to say and how to say it. Yeah. It's so hard to convey that to people. Yeah. 
the mental effort that goes into doing this all day, every day, I'm just wiped. And this is what I love to do. Like I do this all day, every day, because I love to do it. Um, and it's still so taxing. And it's hard to explain that to people. It's hard to get that across. The amount of knowledge I've mastered to do this and do it well is 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 a lot more than I think people would would believe if, if you told them. Yeah, yeah. I, I I'm totally on the same page as you. Um, you know, people are like, Oh, you should be able to do more fees in a day. And I'm like, I but I can't. Like my brain just hurts after doing so many of them. But today I uh, I was doing I had two fees with with a SLP that she's brilliant. She's gonna be going places someday. But um she always asks such good, good questions and you know, I, I'm trying to write my report and she just helps me kind of brainstorm too. Cause she, she's really high level. She's excellent. But you know, she's like, well, what about this? And I, you know, had to whip back it. Well, no, because of this. And she's like, well, what about this? And I was like, well, no, because of this, you know, and she's like, oh my gosh. Like, she's like, I think if I was writing this, I would have written all these really polar opposite responses. And I was like, it's very easy to like, we're talking about to do drop down reports, you know, but the knowledge that I've acquired over, you know, the 10 years that I've been an SLP for over 10 years, but five years that I've been doing this full time, you know, now I, my brain just, it's almost like a ping pong game, you know, like, no, we can't go there. We can't go there. We can't go there, but we have to go here. We have to go here. So there's just so many moving parts instead of just saying, you know, no laryngeal excursion, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So anyways, if you've checked the first three boxes, which is knowing your anatomy and physiology, knowing your neurology, knowing basic medical functions, then then you have Matt's permission to start doing instrumentals. <laughs> yeah, because that's, that's what everyone needs <laughs> yes. is my permission. Yes. <laughs> all right. I love what we're getting into next. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Uh, the t- For those of you who can't see, I always put together a presentation like a PowerPoint. And the title of this slide is uh, Who's Afraid of the Big Wad Wolf? We're talking about aspiration here. I don't know about you guys, but I was always like aspiration was this word that was just this thing. You, you like a first year graduate student, your aspiration and you know, Oh, that's the thing that kills people. If you let someone aspirate, they're going to die and it'll be your fault. And that we're there to stop that. So it's not quite the big bad wolf. We should all be afraid of. Um, but signs and symptoms of aspiration, even before we get into the instrumentals, um, when they're present with solids or liquids, they point to inefficiency or a possible failure of some aspect of the normal swallowing. Now, the caveat for that is without visualization, we can't, we can't see it. We don't, we don't know what's going on. Um, a cough can be a cough. Have nothing to do um, with swallowing. Um, we're completely unable to determine if pharyngeal penetration or aspiration occurred. Um, if you're going to diagnose pharyngeal dysphagia, and I hope I don't offend anybody, but if you're going to diagnose it, you got to have an instrumental. There's no one who can diagnose it from the bedside with a stethoscope or their hand or their ears or their eyes. I really hope that doesn't offend a lot of people, but it's just a fact. Preach it, Matt. Well, you're going <laughs> um, to Harry Potter land tomorrow, so maybe you'll pick up some special Harry that's Potter right. skills. Yeah. Right. Maybe I'll get a magic wand. Yes. Um, a dyspagia one. I like that. Yes. Uh, so we're, we're completely unable to determine also, and this is more important to me um, than aspiration, is whether or not the strategies that we give our patients are helpful or harmful or completely ineffective. And if I'm going to be billing you or if I'm going to be billing anyone for treatment or if I'm going to be treating someone's relative, their mother, their father, their brother, whoever, I certainly want to be helpful. 
I certainly don't want to be harmful and I would rather it not be ineffective. Um, and the only way for us to know that is to take a look because uh, some of those strategies that we give patients are very, very beneficial. Uh, the same strategy that works for one person can absolutely be harmful for another person. Um, so we've, we've got to look. So don't be afraid of the big bad wolf, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. Aspiration is not your enemy. Um, so just getting into that a little bit further, um, clinical signs and symptoms of aspiration. Um, if we're just looking to eliminate aspiration, I think we, some of us should, should wear badges that say um, signs of aspiration elimination specialist. We're just trying to get you where you don't cough when you eat and drink. Um, and that's not really uh, a difficult thing to do. Uh, a lot of times changing the, the bolus size or the consistency uh, or someone in PO uh, will stop them from coughing. Uh, and if that's all we were interested in, that would be great. Um, but if you do that and you're using your instrumentals to do that further, then you're really just making them very expensive pass-fail screenings. And that's not why we're there. We're there to really help people get better, not just say, oh, they aspirated, let's stop that. So I know you probably feel the same way, but. Oh, absolutely. I've got a billion bajillion thoughts going through my head, but you know, I, I, and I just always think of kind of the worst case scenarios that I've lived very recently. And it's just, you know, some of these SLPC aspiration and all of a sudden recommend MPO, you know, right. and it's like, no, <laughs> So I'm, I'm really glad we're talking about this and dissecting all this because, you know, if, if you're one of those SLPs that just that's what you thought or that's what you knew, I, I hope this episode really opens your eyes that aspiration does not equal NPO in a peg tube. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk about aspiration a little bit. So we'll go a little bit further this time and look at the big bad wolf. So what we know, and if you want to look at an article by my mentor, Dr. Ashford from 2016 or Katrina Steele from 2014, or if you want to go back to Langmore in 98, they all say the same thing. Years ago. They all say the same thing, that aspiration of solids and liquids alone is insufficient to cause aspiration ammonia. It's a fact. So aspiration by itself is not enough to, to cause an ammonia, which is really what we're trying to stop if you're looking at what are we trying to do? We're trying to keep people from getting pneumonia because pneumonia in a lot of our population can absolutely be lethal. But aspiration alone um, of solids and liquids is not enough to cause it. And that's not just me saying it. That's three really good studies over 20 years. <laughs> um, saying that, or really 18. One of the studies was in 2016. But if you wanted me to pull six from 2018, I probably could. You probably could. Yes. The information hasn't changed. Um, and let's think about why aspiration is alone is not sufficient to cause aspiration pneumonia. Um, the oropharyngeal swallowing mechanism is really a robust system. There are lots of varying levels of closure. Um, there's a lot of redundancy built in there because if it failed easily, we probably wouldn't be alive as a species. I mean, we wouldn't last long. Um, if, if everything we ate and drank just ended up in our lungs, we I really like that. Can you just repeat that sentence again, Matt? I just really like the way you worded that. I don't know which sentence. You're just your bullet point. No, your bullet point that you have there. Um, the oropharyngeal swallowing mechanism is a robust system with multiple redundancies that does not fail easily. So, the second, the next bullet point is the host immune system. So, our immune response to pathogens that enter the airway is also robust and does not fail easily. That's why everyone who aspirates does not get pneumonia. 
Um, I'm thinking right now of some really young head and neck cancer guys and gals that I have seen over the years and they come in as outpatients and they just look fit as a fiddle and they told their doctor, hey, I'm having trouble swallowing and so they send them for an outpatient modified or an outpatient fees and you see them and you're going, wow, you're aspirating like 75% of every bolus I'm giving you. How are you not sick? Um, but the simple fact of the matter is uh, aspiration alone is not enough to cause pneumonia. They have, at least now, a lot of them are several years post-radiation and chemo, they have healthy immune systems, so they fight it off. So, um, let's see. Oh, uh, my next one. With visualization, we're able to determine uh, the breakdowns in the system and develop a plan of treatment to compensate or rehabilitate swallow function. That's really what visualization is to me, is not catching aspiration or penetration or saying we know what's wrong to a degree. And this is going to sound really weird. I don't care if you're aspirating. I only care to the degree that it lets me know that there is a breakdown somewhere in the normal swallow. And I may now be able to help you get better or at least help you on a maintenance level, maintain swallow function um, so that you can keep eating and drinking. Well, and I think, I know you say that, but I think it's important because a lot of our patients feel that way. A lot of them will say, I don't care that I'm aspirating. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to change my diet. Just tell me what I have to do to improve it. I had a guy today that, you know, had silent aspiration on a few occasions and he's like, I don't care. I'm not going to change my diet. Just tell me what exercises to do to get better. I was like, well, okay, guess we scored that away. So <laughs> I <laughs> Well, yeah, and that's important. We, I, I have heard multiple guests talk about this on your podcasts. Um, I, I have talked to many, many people. Uh, my view on this has changed since I was a grad student and an early clinician. Um, in the medical world, there is simply no treatment that patients are not allowed to refuse. It just, there isn't one. And for some reason, we think that because <laughs> we saw you aspirate that now we have to get you to sign a legal binding document in blood that you're not going to sue us if you aspirate thin liquids. Um, I, I don't understand where we came across that logic. Um, yeah. Especially not when we know that not everyone's going to get sick. So, and I don't, and I don't know that everyone did know that before, you know, I, I don't know where waivers came from originally, but I'm guessing it wasn't someone that knew all this other information. Yeah, probably not. I mean, this is piecing together a lot of stuff. And so when mm -hmm. I have been putting, I, I've been putting together some presentations for uh, some continuing education courses and some other stuff. And this is a lot of information from different fields. Like it's not all from the journal of speech language hearing sciences. This is from the journal of American medical association. This is, from the ENT journals. This is, there, there's a lot of information out there that is outside of our field um, that may not be so easy to pull together if you don't have hours and hours to read every day. Right, right. Um, Nerd alert. Yeah, right, which is <laughs> my favorite thing to do. <laughs> Other than actually participating in some research, my next favorite thing to do is to read research. Uh, so yeah, I, the, if you don't have time to do that, hey, just so where we have done some reading. Um, there you go. Or we'll actually just put the researcher on. I love that yes. you've had several people on who've done um, research in the field and they're not just talking about articles they've read, they're talking about articles they wrote. Yes, <laughs> yes. Know. I've got, uh, there's a, a big slew of researchers coming up soon. So yeah, get hold your seats, kids. Yes. That's excellent. Yeah. Um, so this, 
we're about to shift gears and start talking about what the point of assessment is. And I know we started off talking about writing reports and we're going to get to writing reports, but you can't talk about writing reports unless you have a clear idea of where you are headed and why you're headed there. So I asked this um, in a continuing ed course that we do several times a year and no one quite ever says the answer that I have. So if I ask, what's the point of assessment? Um, we get a lot of, or the point of assessment and specifically the point of modifieds and fees. Um, why do we do them as speech language pathologists? I get several answers. Uh, you know, so we can see if they're aspirating is the most common one. Um, so we can see if they are safe uh, to eat and drink. That's another one. Um, to, oh goodness, what's another one? To see if they need, <laughs> I got this one, to see if they need a tube feeding. Um, so there are a lot of reasons that I get, but if you ask me, and this is very different than, than you're going to read in a lot of uh, textbooks even. Um, our primary goal of swallowing uh, assessment intervention is to assist the medical team in optimizing nutrition and hydration. We cannot, cannot, cannot forget that. Being dehydrated and being malnourished are every bit as bad, if not worse, than aspirating. Um, you know, if we're going to do something that's going to make our patients worse, which some of the research now, if you start reading, um, some of the typical approaches that we use may be making things worse and not making things better. Like, and we're gonna get into this later, but thickened liquids. Uh, people tend to get dehydrated on thickened liquids. Well, let's think about the people we're tending to treat. Um, uh, people over 65, uh, people into their 80s, uh, who dehydration is absolutely bit every bit as uh, deadly as, as, as aspiration or pneumonia. Um, so primary goal for me to assist the medical team in optimizing nutrition and hydration. That is also more complex than looking to see if your patient just passed or failed. I mean, your doctor looks at you that way a lot of times in the hospital, you know, they'll call, oh, did they pass, hey Matt, did they pass their swallow study or did they fail it? Well, a lot of people, we get some pushback. My, the exam I do is, is a little bit harder and a little more nuanced than just to be reduced to a pass or a fail. But when we tell them all that matters is whether they're aspirating or not, it's not silly for them to say, did they pass or did they fail? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, we're perpetuating our own bad information. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, it, it, we're a little more complex if we're thinking about um, optimizing nutrition and hydration. And it also keeps us from being in our own little silo where we're not talking to people. We just make our recommendations in this vacuum. And then oh, the dietitian can figure out how to get calories in them or the doctor can figure out if they want to go against our recommendations. No, we're, we're part of a team here and we need to make our patients um, make it easy, as easy as possible on them to get uh, food and, and liquids. Um, and some of our patients have trouble with that. There's a lot of diagnoses that go on, um, a lot of comorbidities that, that, that make it difficult to stay uh, with nutrition and hydration. Um, but that's where we need to be looking, not just penetration aspiration. All right. So we have some secondary goals, if you ask me. Um, so the primary goal being to optimize nutrition, hydration. Um, for me, it's to determine the unique swallowing pattern or profile of that patient. Every patient is different. Um, the more I do swallow studies, the more I realize I don't have all the answers. And the times I think I know what's go, what's going to happen going in because I've done great chart review and the clinician's done a great job of giving me information about how they are. And I had a great 
report from the hospital, from the therapist there. And I may have even talked to him on the phone and you walk in and nothing happens the way you think it will. Every patient is, is unique. Um, and so when you, when you understand their unique pattern, it gives you an understanding of their current level of function. We get a lot of folks who say fees or modifieds are just a snapshot in time. Yes, they are, and it lets us know where we're beginning so that when we look later, we can see if our treatment has been effective. And everything, quite frankly, is a snapshot in time. I had blood work done today at my doctor's office, and that's a snapshot of how I was today. I didn't refuse to do the test because I was saying, well, that's not representative of the other 364 days this year. Um, so it gives us a baseline, a place to start from. Um, it also determines whether swallowing patterns are normal, abnormal, but functional or disordered. And for me, swallowing is really a continuum, but it helps to kind of break it down into three levels for me. Normal, just within normal limits. Abnormal, but functional. I see that a lot. Um, I don't know about you, but the more I look, the more I see abnormal, but functional. That's not yes. usually the way it looks. Yes. Hey, it's working for you. So I'm not going to give you a diagnosis that's going to that's going to hinder you. I'm certainly not going to thicken your liquids or modify your diet. Um, and then we have the truly disordered swallows, and those are the swallows where my brain hurts after the the study because there's a lot of just mental investment in trying to figure out why um, and when and how are we going to help. Um, and 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 that for me is the way I break it down: normal, abnormal, but functional and disordered. Um, and then the other thing about determining the unique swallowing pattern for your patient is it determines the effectiveness of any techniques. Um, if you don't, and we're going to get into this later, if you don't test something, you can't talk about it in your report. And that I don't have backed up with an article, but for me, that's a simple statement of fact. I can't tell you something uh, something that I know to be true unless I looked and saw that it was true. So if you're thinking like, hey, let's do a chin tuck because this person has premature spillage that we saw um, on the fees or on the modified, that may help, um, but it may not. And if you don't actually look at it when you're doing it, you can't say, oh, well, we know they had poor oral containment, so we're going to have the patient do a chin tuck. You need to see what it looks like. And if, if you do modifieds and fees for very long start to realize that you think a compensatory strategy is textbook for this patient and you use it and lo and behold you just opened their airway right up to a really large bowl is heading down so um, you, you got to look at it um, any postural changes any strategies any viscosity we still have we cannot beat to death this idea that thicker is better reports where patients uh, aspirate on a teaspoon um, of thin liquid. They're not given anything else, and a recommendation is made for thick, honey thick, or pudding egg liquid. Really? You, you, you have to look at it to see. <laughs> you don't know what happens. Um, so anyway, if you're, you're going to talk about it, you're going to need to look at it. Because um, we've all seen those patients that aspirate on everything. Yeah. And we know from the literature, uh, aspirating uh, thin liquids, uh, specifically water, is a whole lot easier on your lungs than aspirating uh, gel-based or starch-based thickeners. Lungs are not used to handling that material when it gets down there. They can, um, but uh, aspiration of, of those is, is, not, is not handled as well by the body. Uh, 
as water specifically. So I'm about to attempt to talk about the three pillars of aspiration pneumonia. Um, that's going to be hard to do because uh, Dr. Ashford, I, I work for Dr. Ashford. Um, and yes, and he one. talked about it. I believe, I believe he was either episode two or three. So you can go back and listen to that if you want an entire hour long dissection of that. But we'll just briefly cover it here. And it's great. It, it, the three pillars of aspiration has absolutely changed my conceptualization of, of how I treat patients and, and what I think is uh, the right way to treat patients with dysphagia and the wrong way, I guess. Some people might argue there's no wrong way, but I think there's a lot of wrong ways. But the three pillars of aspiration and you're really important to understand. Um, so for aspiration, and we talked earlier about um, uh, there's a complex relationship between aspiration and pneumonia. Uh, there is. You have to have three basic things go wrong in order to get pneumonia from aspiration. You have to have a severe, uh, some sort of impairment in your health status um, that does something to your immune system. Uh, you have to have a high incidence of unsafe swallows and you have to have poor oral status. The interesting thing about that um, is that it pretty much lines up with uh, what the research that Langmore did. Langmore's predictors of aspiration pneumonia if you haven't read that paper and you're listening to this podcast, read that paper. Number one, it's excellent. And number two, it's excellent. And number three, it's got a really cool, actually like flow chart um, uh, on the manuscript that shows what has to happen in order for pneumonia from aspiration to occur. And I'm a visual learner. And so, you know, I've read that article several times um, and quite frankly, not paid as much attention uh, to that little flow chart uh, or whatever you want to call it, diagram, um, as I did this time. And it just sort of hit me. I was like, that lines right up with the three pillars of aspiration. Um, and these studies, uh, if you're looking at uh, where I think Dr. Ashford pulled most of his information, it's uh, out of a study that Ortega did uh, and several others in 2014. Langmore's is in 98. So it's, again, when you're looking at the information that we have, this has been tested for years and years and years, and it's holding up. Um, so you got to have poor oral health status. That's one thing. Um, some patients, you look in their mouth and they've got a really full-on periodontal disease. That patient's at risk for aspiration pneumonia, significant risk. They're actually at risk for pneumonia in general. Um, that's, uh, poor oral health, oral health status actually also has, uh, has a lot to do with your overall health status. Um, but you got to have that. Um, then you got to have a high incidence of unsafe swallows. Uh, and that's an interesting one to me because uh, if you look at the numbers on swallowing, the average person swallows anywhere from 900 to 1,200 times a day. That's not really including food and drink. That's just swallowing your own saliva. Um, if you're aspirating liquid, you're likely aspirating your own saliva, and there's absolutely nothing that we can do to stop that. Um, then you've also got patients who have reflux. None of our strategies combat reflux. Um, so a high incidence of unsafe swallows doesn't always mean what we see on, um, on our modifieds or fees. A lot of our patients have just a high incidence of unsafe swallows to begin with. Well, and I think the key word, key words is high incidence. It's yeah. not one incidence of aspiration. Right. Um, you've got to have a pattern. For me, if a, if a person aspirates once, that's not indicative of a, a pattern of dysphagia. It may not even be true dysphagia. Probably if you did me under fluoro or on fees, I'd probably aspirate. I take huge bites. I take continuous sips all the time. 
since you and I started this thing, I think I've chugged 32 ounces of water so far. Wonder how much of it's sitting in your lungs, man. Probably right. I, someone should make me NPO right now. Um, so anyway, the other thing is you, you, on top of that, you've got to have stuff getting down into your lungs and that stuff has to be carrying pathogens, not just bacteria, but it's got to be carrying pathogens. And you've got to have something wrong with your immune system. Now that can be any number of things. Maybe patients fall and break their hips. Patients have CVAs. Patients have surgeries, you name it. Um, something, uh, inhibits your immune system's ability to respond and you have poor oral health status and you have a high incidence of unsafe swallows, now you've got someone who's really at risk for developing pneumonia from aspiration. Um, all three of those things have to be met really to put us at risk for aspiration pneumonia. Um, and some of the things that we do, we're gonna talk about this a little bit later, some of the things that we do actually uh, may cause uh, one or more of these pillars to fall down as opposed to uh, helping our patients. Um, so for instance, poor oral health status, if you've got a patient who you make completely NPO and now their mucosa has dried out, it's much more likely to be colonized by pathogens. If we've got patients who have significant reflux and we make them uh, NPO, completely NPO, we know that the pharyngeal swallow is what helps clear reflux. Um, now they're not swallowing as much. Now they're refluxing more. Now they're at a greater risk for um, aspiration of gastric contents. And aspiration of gastric contents is a whole other issue. Um, that's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous thing. Does significant damage to the lungs when you aspirate that. Um, that's completely different from aspirating food and liquid. Um, so some of the things we do while we think we may be helping our patients actually contribute to one or more of these pillars. Um, and we may be sometimes putting our patients at an increased risk for getting pneumonia. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's what so many people don't realize. Yeah. So and that I'm, requires, I'm really yeah, that requires looking at the whole patient and that's not an easy thing to do. Um, that goes back to the conversation you and I were having earlier where we were talking, do you want to be doing a lot of instrumentals when you're first out or do you need to be focusing on this uh, medical piece first? Uh, you definitely have to have the medical piece um, under control because it definitely impacts the recommendations that I make on a daily basis. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.